Oh, do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we are excited to welcome ESPN basketball commentator and former Division I head coach, Fran Fraschilla. We discuss the great European game and trends making their way to lower levels, reverse engineering offenses, the best practice plans and coaches, his role as a commentator, his co-host dream team, and so much more. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify. Follow us for daily breakdowns on Twitter and YouTube. And subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter, where we consolidate much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, without further ado, please enjoy our conversation with Fran Fraschilla. Coach, I'd love to dive in with this question for you. You've been doing this for, for decades as both a coach, now and as an announcer. You've seen all sorts of basketball from all over the world. At this point in your career, what about the game of basketball, whether it's announcing, coaching, learning, what most excites you? What gets you out of bed with the game of basketball at this point? Uh, you know, I, I think there's, I could, I could answer that on a couple levels. First of all, what excites me is watching great competition at every level, you know, and, and right now what we're watching in the bubble for me, it's the most NBA basketball I've watched in a long, long time because it's the only basketball on. And I, I, I just love the, uh, I love the evolution of the game. I love the way the game comes full circle, you know, so much of our game, uh, I, I've said often that there's not much that's been invented in basketball, you know, unless your name was Newell or Iba or B, but that's probably not true anymore. Um, I'd have to amend that because when I watch an NBA game now and I study it with the time to study it, Dan, uh, the sophistication of, of, of the game itself, the, 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 the strategy, the nuances of the game, are, are phenomenal um, in order to guard the best players in the world or score on the best defenses in the world. Um, there are subtleties that I try to watch for and learn that um, I then try to pass on down to my coaching friends at the college and high school level. And, and as you guys know, and, and, and Patrick knows from coaching overseas, it, the game is the globe is shrinking. The basketball globe is shrinking. And, and the idea is that now we steal from, a coach in Germany or a coach in Italy and bring to the United States, you see it filter into the NBA in college. And then guys like me are trying to filter it down to the high school level in a, in a more simple way. Um, so that gets me excited. And just, I, you know, I grew up on a, I grew up on the playgrounds of Brooklyn, New York over 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Now I'm 62. And I've always just been enamored of the orange ball, you know, a pair of sneakers, the ball. I live two blocks from a from a uh, asphalt playground basketball court. I lived on I lived on that court as a young man, and it, the game has taught me so much. 
that transcends just basketball, but life itself, the teamwork, sacrifice. Um, you know, I was telling somebody the other day, and it's just not to get off into a social experiment, but basketball is a game of inclusion, you know, and I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn. And like, uh, there'd be the kid that you'd, you'd, you'd need a 10th man for the five on five game. And there'd be a kid, um, might be mixed races out there on the court. And then there'd be a kid shooting over in the other court with a yarmulke on, you know, and I would say, Hey, uh, you want to play? We need a 10th. And, you know, you brought that kid in and you, you, you included him. And whether it's a bunch of white kids going to a black playground or growing up, growing up in an ethnic neighborhood, like I did, there's something about the game that brings people together when it's done right, played right, coached right. And, uh, it's kind of why I love the game so much. Yeah, I love that. And I think it's probably why, too, the international part of it, bringing to the U.S., it's just the inclusion of that to our, our game as well. Yeah, I think, you know what, uh, one thing I think, I know we would get into this, but let's get into it now. We taught this great game, you know, over the last 50 years to our friends around the world. UB Brown, Chuck Daly, Dr. Jack Ramsey, Bob McKillop more recently. Um, you know, we we went around the world. They came over to see us, Ettore Messina, bringing his Italian uh, under-19 team to to New York many years ago when I first met him, coaching at Manhattan College. Um, the various international coaches that you meet at the NBA Summer League. And uh, we taught our friends around the world the game, and now they're teaching it back to us. And we're stealing from them now. And uh, so that's that's the really one of the things I enjoy about being so involved in, uh, in an international hoop and the love, I, as you guys know, I have for the international game is to share that game with our American friends and say, hey, you, you, we can make our game over here better just by learning from what we um, are seeing overseas. Happens all the time. Expanding on that, what are some of the things that you think the European system can now teach and that you're, like you said, trying to teach, especially at the college level, where I think really the college and the international game can be very similar you know, yes. in terms of tactics? Yeah, tactics and rules, playing zone, you know, no, no illegal defenses. Uh, well, I think, first of all, you know, it's probably a complicated uh, answer. But first of all, as you know, Patrick, uh, uh, the trapezoid lane, uh, uh, the FIBA lane for many years invited uh, the development of per players, not just in the low post, but on the perimeter. Uh, the other thing, the way the, the, way the game was taught in, in, overseas uh, correctly, in my opinion, was to make sure all players at all positions could do the same things, handle, pass, catch, and shoot, right? Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been to uh, uh, practices or or gone to a game or a practice where the youth team was practicing before the practice of the, uh, of the, of the older guys, and you would see incredible adherence to teaching the fundamentals, as, as you guys are quite aware. And so... I honestly believe that that's something that we can always do better at the college and high school level here. Um, and that is never lose sight of the fact that at, at its core, the game is a game of fundamentals. And so no matter how tricky your X and O's are or your tactics and strategy from a macro level, really the game has got to be taught well uh, fundamentally. And I think that that's been a big thing uh, that, that I've gleaned from my European friends. You know, I asked Jeff Van Gundy on, on a podcast recently, 
because he really didn't have a, uh, until recently being involved with USA basketball, he didn't have an experience with international basketball. And I said, what about these international guys? Have you enjoyed watching in the NBA? And he said, the skill level, the skill level, whether, whether it's Bogdan Bogdanovich with the Kings or the other Bogdanovich with the Jazz. And we're not talking about Doncic and, and, uh, and the Greek freak. We're talking about the run-of-the-mill good NBA international player. Um, every one of those guys is a skilled offensive player. And um, they have really helped our, um, uh, not only the NBA game, but I think you take the, uh, you take the, uh, the inclusion of international players in, in the NBA and also the effect that Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Dame Lillard have had on our game, and all of a sudden, kids don't want to dunk anymore and make and make a Sports Center highlight. They want to make a thirty-five foot jump shot. Right. And I think so. I think the skill level at every level has improved in the United States, believe it or not, over the last fifteen years because of the inclusion of international basketball. Coach, if um, if we could, I'd love to kind of keep diving in on international basketball yeah. and talk a little X's and O's for a little bit. Yes. Sure. Fire away. Um, specifically, pick and roll. And um, I think that the European game has been you know, far ahead of the American game as far as false motion and, and off-ball movement and flipping a screen, all of these various actions. Um, yeah. What are some of the pick and roll concepts that you're seeing out of Europe right now that you think will most easily or... Um, more quickly translate to say the college game this maybe upcoming year or coming seasons well you know uh, when i was coaching at manhattan college um i had a six foot three power forward and he was a really good player he played at the matha high school i was a great player there and he ended up being a great player at manhattan college and i laugh now about the nba because you know everybody says well the nba has invented small ball and i'm like no no we've been playing small ball for 50 years at the Division one level, D two, D three, high school, and even even in Europe, you know, and and so. Um, but to answer specifically, because the players are skilled, um, and because of the trapezoid lane, I believe no longer in existence. Obviously, people changing the rule. Um, European game, I wouldn't say it was a finesse game, but I think it's no question that it developed uh, uh, perimeter bigs. Bigs that could stretch the floor and um, and space the floor, which we're seeing now uh, here in the United States on the college and the NBA level. So uh, four out is very common, and, and as you guys know, um, pick and roll in Europe is. Uh, I, I th- and I'm I'm only surmising now, but I think because of the lack of athleticism uh, that has has been at times inherent in European basketball that the idea of creating a, a, a confusion at the point of the pick and roll screen is something uh, that's been used to free uh, guards to make plays in, in space, get into the lane. You know, my big thing in pick and roll is the first object to pick and roll is to get the ball to the paint. Mm-hmm. Forget the screen, just get the ball to the paint. We, if, especially when we can reject the screen and we do it every single time. But the second point of pick and roll is to cause confusion at the point of the screen um one thing i learned from being at a steve nash camp years ago uh got to work with him uh and and as you guys know he's a tremendous guy um but i said steve what are you thinking about when you take the ball to a screen and he said coach um 
in an, in, in an NBA career, I'll probably have seen 10 to 12 pick and roll coverages. Now, you know, in a European season, you might see five or six. Um, you might see a couple more in the NBA. In college, you might see three to five pick and roll coverages. But Steve made an interesting point. He said, I have to have a solution for every coverage. And I think the thing I've tried to get to my, get my American coaching friends to understand is you have a you have a you have a play and it ends up in pick and roll. Um, the defense is going to have a coverage uh, and you must have a solution for the coverage or you will not have pick and roll offense. Now, once you have a solution for the coverage, they may actually adjust to the solution. And then you must, at, at the very final level, have an adjustment to that defensive adjustment. You know, and you, you see this all the time with great European teams and coaches. Um, if you're going to go under my ball screen, and I, I'm trying to get my American friends to understand, to teach their bigs to rescreen uh, on an under. And, and this happens, as, as Pat knows, uh, these 14, 15, 16-year-old young big kids in Europe are taught this at a very early age to flip the screen. So, you know, I've tried to explain to my American friends, they go under, you rescreen. You rescreen, they may aggressively trap the second screen. You short roll the trap, and now we play four on three. And and they may and they may step up and tag the roller with the low man, and you have to swing it, and they X out, and you must beat the closeout. So six or seven strategies have happened on one pick and roll play, and I'm trying to get my American coaching friends to understand that this, uh, even on one play, there's going to be an adjustment to the adjustment to the adjustment. And and so I, I but getting back to what you asked earlier, I think every pick and roll offense must have a solution for the coverage or we have no offense. And that's the beauty of the European game to me. I think that's a really important point and something that I've noticed immediately is that the offenses out here, they, they build their offense based on what I would call, yeah, their, their automatics their pick and roll automatics. And then yes. from there they establish their sets where I think sometimes in the States, these coaches, like we're just going to put in sets, sets, sets. Yes. And then, like you said, but you, your players don't know how to play out of the sets or then how to finish a set because they're so just drilled A to B to C. I had an interesting tweet the other day, Pat, because I got this idea from a one, my, one of my coaching gurus is a guy named Gordy Chiesa. Um, Gordy, for New Yorkers, remember him. He was a, uh, he ended up being the head coach of Providence when Rick Pitino left, but he had a short stint there. And Gordy spent 16 years in Utah with the Jazz, Jerry Sloan, Stockton, and Malone almost the entire run. And so I, I learned a lot from Gordy. And uh, one of the things I learned from Gordy, and I, and I, I never, I didn't, I stole, I, I, he didn't give me this term, but I stole it from, you know, from the corporate world. You should reverse engineer, to your point, we should re reverse engineer our offense. In other words, in a, in, a, in a shot clock game, we should spend every day on the final seven seconds of an offensive set and, and get comfortable with, what, how much time seven seconds, seven seconds actually is, and what can we get done? How many, how many DHOs can we get in a seven second uh, end of clock situation? What happens when we throw it into the post in the final seven seconds? Um, can we give and go to change up and not just DHO or pick and roll all the time? And once you get to the point where you've reversed engineered the back end of your shot clock, now you put your sets in, play out of your sets. I think the kids play with more freedom and confidence. 
And, and I think to your point, we don't do that as much in the States with our, with our offensive teaching. You said it perfectly. Yeah. Learn to play out of your sets, not just learn to play your sets. Yeah. I, I think that that, you know, it's funny. I have two young, they're not young anymore. They're in their twenties, but I told both sons who are coaching now, coaching defense is, is, is not hard. Um, it's, you know, I was, I was at Air Force practice uh, this week with Joe Scott, who's a brilliant Princeton-style coach. Uh, he's back at Air Force, did a great job there, played for Pete Carrillo. And he, and he said something that I wrote down and I tweeted yesterday. Defense is the will of the coach, okay? The, I can get five guys off the street, put them in shell drill for 20 minutes, and if they got some intestinal fortitude, they could probably – be a pretty good defensive team. Offense is spacing, timing, and, and adherence to the fundamentals and have a feel for the flow of the game. And I think that takes way more time than becoming a good defensive coach. So I've encouraged both sons to really study the offensive side of the ball um, at an early stage in their coaching career, because I think it's much harder to be good offensively than it is to be a good defensive coach. Kind of d- drilling in more on becoming a good offensive coach. Yeah. All these practices and walkthroughs and places that you go and see, mm-hmm. what are what are the best offensive coaches and minds in the country doing in practice that translates to helping their team on the floor? Yeah, this, this, there's different there's different ways to slice that up. Um, Bill Self, for example, will stay on one offensive set uh, until he feels everybody's got it right. He'll spend 20 minutes on one a- uh, offensive action that they're really whether it's high-low game, which they've had. Uh, they've more recently in the last four or five years gone to a four-out pick-and-roll game, which has been really effective to the point where <clears throat> what you admire about guys like Bill Self and other great coaches is their ability to kind of um, uh, change on the fly and adjust constantly. And so I, I said to Bill last year, I said, are you going to go back to the three-out, two-in, high-low game? And he said, yeah, we'll put it in, but I just love coaching four-out. And that's not something you would have heard five years ago. So, but Bill will stay on something until his team gets it right. But um, I, I, I still think, Dan, that, um, you know, I, I used to tell my guys when it came to the first 30 minutes of practice, when we really spent a lot of time on just simple, basic, fundamental basketball, don't get bored if you're getting better. Okay. Don't get bored if you're getting better. And I would tell them this, they would kind of smile at me when I would say this. You guys realize the first 30 minutes of practice, I'm bored. Right. I'll, I want to get on to five on five and play play up and down and, and put in our tricky plays. But I understand the importance of footwork and catching, passing, shooting. And, and then I would say to, to the guys, I'd say, Pat, hey, when's the last time you traveled? And he would say to me, Coach, I haven't traveled this season. I go, yeah, no fooling. <laughs> I think we do this stuff every day. And so I think the one thing great coaches do is they get they, they, they explain the why of uh, of of why we have to be great at the basics before we can build on the basics. Um, but but I see with to, to answer your question, Dan, I see so many different types of coaches doing it different ways and having success. But um, I also see coaches in college. I'd be, I'll be honest. And if they, I, I, nobody's going to know who I'm talking about, but I see coaches run offense because they saw a, somebody put down some plays on a chalkboard at a coaching clinic without the idea of why plays work. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't think coaches put enough time into 
why do why do plays work and what will teams do to take plays away from us and do we have adjustments to the to the way they'll take take something away from us and can we stick it right back at them by again not just in pick and roll but in all offense adjusting to a defense's adjustment like you said, I know you've seen a ton of practices and so many different coaches. What have you seen that has stuck out to you as far as teaching kind of the mental aspect of the game, making better decision makers, kind of making smarter basketball players, especially when you say the game is a game of adjustments to adjustments to adjustments? Not as much, Pat, honestly. Mm-hmm. Not as much. Uh, I um, I had a chance last summer to go to the Bahamas uh, with Texas Tech and do some broadcasting for their foreign trip and uh the mega b max team was there uh as part of this little tournament to get some exhibition games in and of course mega is the place that uh, nikola Jokic came up through uh their their coach was a very good player dayon i uh, can't think of dayon's last name right now but big strong guy that was a great serbian player and i asked him about Jokic. this was two summers ago not not this past summer because we couldn't you know obviously travel and um the beauty of of decision i i think what what is missing in practices in the united states that i wish could be added is absolutely more decision making drills more reads you know uh, uh and and more um ability to to see the game as opposed to just play the game and run the coaches plays and you know a simple thing like, uh, and I and again this is new to MB uh, to college coaches and high school coaches. We've seen Draymond Green do it recently, but it's been very common in Europe. Is the short roll, you know, aggressive pick and roll coverage. We we don't have time to roll a big guy all the way to the rim, you know, and, and attack the rim. We've got to open up early and look for the pocket pass uh, because of the coverage of the pick and roll. And so I talked to uh, uh, the coach at Mega. And he explained how they just simply put uh, a big 19, 20-year-old Nikola Jokic in short roll drills, hit him with the pass, and what we call the high paint, two shooters in the corner and two two defenders on the baseline. And uh, it might be a situation where when, when the big guy catches the ball in the high paint, um, the, guy, the guy in the right corner, the coach puts his hand up, and that's where the ball should be passed quickly. You know, it might be left corner. It might be no hands up, so you drive it to the rim. Uh, little drill, you know, simple drills like that, pick and roll drills uh, about reading coverages or reading the three help defenders. I never see that in, in American practices and, and being able to not just attack pick and roll one-on-one or two-on-two, but attack it five-on-five. And then train your players to be able to throw a cross-court jump pass or a cross-court hook pass to the opposite corner because that that shooter in the corner, his man is tagging the roller in the lane. And we have to put enormous pressure on the defense by putting them either where we get an open shot or put them in a closeout situation. That's not as common at the college and high school level as I wish it was. Decision-making and drills in practice. I've had the good fortune. So where, where we're located, we are about a... Uh five to seven minute drive from the Honda Center, which is where every other year is where the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight takes place in the NCAA yes. tournament. And um, what I do is I always reach out to the teams that are in the Sweet 16 and say, hey, if you're looking for a practice space. And yeah. um, I've, I've been really fortunate over the last couple of years, we had Coach K and Duke when they were out here with Ingram. Um, and then 
two years ago, we had Chris Beard in Texas Tech when they went to the finals along with Mark Few. And I got a chance to sit in those practices and watch. And one of the things that stuck out to me about those coaches is they were obviously great teachers and had great players, but they also um, were able to add elements of like fun into the practice where it was like the guys enjoyed working hard and, and going through the practice Yes. from the practices and coaches you've seen, how do they balance getting the job done with making it fun in a sense for the players and that they want to be there? Well, it's a great question. I think the day of the, uh, I got to figure out the right way to say it. The bully, the bully coach is probably over. You know, I do. I think, I think that's part, I think that part is over. Um, I think now the way young people are, um, the way to motivate them is not transactional, but transformational. Uh, you know, they got to know you care about them. I think, I think it's a two way street I, in the, in the case of Texas tech for sure. And I just talked to coach few the other day and I have enormous respect for the job he's done. Um, they get kids who love to play. They, they, they actively seek out guys who want to practice yeah. and play and get better. Now, in the case of both programs, most recently, they have kids who want to play professional basketball at the NBA level. Uh, and if not overseas, so um, I, I think that um, I, I, I think the way you make the game fun is to make sure that they get a chance to improve individually with their skill work, where it's not just, you know, obviously it's a five on five game, but um, I've noticed, like, for example, with that great Texas tech team, you talked about, mm-hmm. they had four or five guys who lived in the gym every day. Now they had a couple grad transfers yeah. who could take some grad courses online. They'd already finished their degrees. I'm thinking of Matt Mooney who played in the NBA last year. Tariq Owens played in the NBA. Um, so I, I think that uh, the motivation at the highest level of college basketball to not only win games and go to the NCAA tournament, but also to be professional players helps you uh, in practice because you're pushing them uh, to get better individually. And and that's why I go back to the coaching at any level, high school, college, junior high. You must explain to these young people why we teach what we teach fundamentally and and just the ability to come off a screen and we're going to throw it to your inside shoulder because that's a, that's a, that's a nonverbal way of telling you you're open. You know, when we throw it to your inside shoulder coming off a pin down, if we throw it to your outside shoulder, we're telling you you're not open. We're throwing it away from a defender who's close by and maybe you reverse pivot to use a, to use a, Coach uh, Coach Pete Newell term a reverse turn, and attack the guy with a reverse turn. But the point is, um, I, I I think with uh, with with those kind of teams, you're you make it fun by getting them to understand that we're also improving you individually, sure. and this is going to help you not only be successful at the college level but even beyond. Absolutely, the practices we've had sometimes are kind of more like walkthroughs. Yeah. Um, but la- but two years ago. Texas Tech had a full practice one of the days, and I've never seen anything like that. I've never yeah. seen anything like a Chris Beard practice. You know, first of all, they showed up with about eight people with a whole sound system to our gym, oh, yeah. and oh, they yeah. had the music. It was I thought unbelievable. that was phony. Oh, the first time, and I've known Chris a long time as an assistant to Bob Knight. The first time he brought his Texas Tech in uh, to a game, uh, uh, and I think I'm trying to think it was at Allen Fieldhouse, and I thought it was phony. 
I thought it was fake enthusiasm. And the one thing I've learned from Texas Tech and Chris is there's nothing phony about what they do. No. And the uh, and I do believe this. See, I think honestly think coaches can foster, assuming that you're dealing with good young men who don't know a lot. Okay, they don't they 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 don't know what they don't know. I think you can foster enthusiasm and you can foster toughness. I honestly think you can foster toughness in in, in terms of how you set your practices up. That the, that you know, I'm a big overload theory guy. Uh, I try to make practices tougher than the games, both mentally and physically. Um, and I'm not talking about uh, throwing balls at guys and screaming and yelling, although I raise my voice from time to time. But I think the way you create a practice, uh, I, I think one of the most underrated things in great coaching is how you create a practice that allows your team to get better, not just for a day or two, but for 100 practices over the course of the season. And that's the one thing I love when I go around and watch teams is how do they coordinate their practice? I, I never ran a sprint in, in, in all my years as a kid, head coach. I told our guys, look, if we're going to practice for two hours, I will make sure that at the end of the two hours, you're exhausted. So we won't need to run after practice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and oftentimes, and here's another thing we did, we set up drills so that I used to tell them the harder we go, the shorter the drill is. Okay, so if the drill set up for 10 minutes of shell, you know, four, two, four or five different shell type actions, I would say to them, if we go 100% and, and with great technique, because the great Ron Adams once said that don't ever sacrifice technique for intensity. So it's one thing to be intense in your drills, but are you teaching proper technique? Mm-hmm. But, but my philosophy on, in coaching and practice was, listen, the harder we go, the shorter the drill is. So if it's a 10-minute drill and we get everything done in seven and a half minutes, we just move on. Sure. Now, if it's a 10-minute drill and we don't go as hard as I think we should be going in a drill with great technique and, and intensity, it'll be a 15-minute drill. But if you want to make it an eight-minute drill, we need, we need maximum intensity with good execution. Absolutely. And I think kids appreciate that the, that the, the coaches – UB Brown once said the, the big, greatest way to inspire confidence in your players and in, in you – is is organization that when they show up at a practice if it's a 60 minute practice they know that you're going to get a lot done in 60 minutes if it's a two-hour practice a lot's going to get done and i think one thing where coaches can continue to improve here on this side of the water uh you know college and high school level is practice organization how practice is set up for your kids to get better following up about your practice organization when you were a coach or going to these practices, how much are they trying to fit into a practice and accomplish and not just, I mean, I know you said overload, but not doing like, we're going to try to get all of our sets, all of our defense in today. Yeah. I, I think it depends on the part. Obviously, Pat, part of the season you're in, you know, uh, and I, I, was a, I was an adherence to shorter practice as the season went on. Two and a half in October, November, uh, maybe, maybe 90 minutes in December maybe 75 in January and then 60 or less in February. Uh, I, I learned from some great coaches, both good and bad, by the way, I, I work for Danny knee, Gary Williams and Rick Barnes. I mean, that's, you know, that's 2000 wins right there, you know? And, and, but what I learned from, from them was sometimes, well, no more times than not less is more as the season goes on. We can accomplish the same things in February in 60 minutes that we could in two and a half hours in a, in October. So I think coaches have to be careful 
not to try to do too much as the season goes on, because then I think it becomes not only physically taxing, but mentally draining to a player. And, and you would you would identify because you played for so long. Um, so I think that it depends on what part of season as, as far as what you're trying to get done. Um, I was a big believer in covering a lot of offensive actions with our defense in October and November. We might not see flex offense until mid-January when we went and played Canisius. But we worked on flex offense in October and November because I wanted the kids to have a confidence that we were going to cover something way before we needed to worry about it. So we would be prepared, you know, Uh, make as many pressure decisions as you possibly can in the non-pressure time of the preseason. So if we're playing Canisius and John Beeline on a Saturday night in, in late January, but we had to play on a Thursday night. We only had one day to get ready for a really good coach. We started working on that team's offense in October and November. And, and, and because I always felt this about uh, go, and I, even when I watch practices, if you can guard the best offensive actions that you'll see during the season uh, in October, November, then whatever you really have to guard the rest of the way will become a little bit easier. So if we had a couple of teams that we really had trouble guarding throughout the year, um, and we knew we weren't going to see them till middle or late season. We started working on those actions in, in the preseason. And, and I just, I'd like to see more coaches do that, you know, uh, take the hardest things you have to guard, guard it early enough that it actually makes your defense better anyway. And then you still have more, you have great preparation for when you do see those teams in the middle of your season. Coach moving to your work as both an announcer and also someone that I know ESPN relies on for uh, the draft and your knowledge of European players and coaches and things like that. You know, we're coming up to the draft here in a little bit. There's been so many players that have been drafted by NBA teams from Europe. Mm -hmm. And like all players drafted, some pan out, some don't. But what do you think that NBA teams now are looking for in a European player specifically uh, to add to their rosters in the, the modern NBA? Well, definitely skill level, as we talked about earlier. Um, you know, European players are coming over here, again, not just the superstars, but the guys that, you know, I mean, Goran Dragic, perfect example. I mean, that guy is a skilled, you know, I mean, there's no question Goran is a skilled player. You know, uh, and he's 32 years old. So what's changed in 20 years, Dan, is that your uh, NBA teams have a much, much better feel of the various levels of play in Europe. So now that it translates, they can more accurately translate like uh, the difference between the Adriatic League in, you know, in, uh, in the former Yugoslavia and what ACB level is or ACB versus French Pro A or German BBL. And now those leagues are at a level, at a point where they're producing NBA players. Um, and we know that. We, now we know that, a, like a Daniel Tice, for example, um, you know, what that translation might be like from where he played to an NBA roster. Um, so that's really changed. And I think the comfort, and, and I think the scouting has changed. There's more resources given uh, every NBA team's got at least a couple of different uh, scouts in Europe, either a full-time guy and some part-time guys. Um, I don't know if, if, if Pat would agree, but I, I think that, um, and you might have heard me use this analogy before, but if the NBA is Major League Baseball, then the Euro League and the Spanish ACB is AAA Baseball, and the Big 12 and the Pac-12 are AA Baseball. You can average 17 at Kansas and not be the same type of player 
that a guy who's playing on a deep Real Madrid team and he's 19 years old and he's averaging 10 points a game. You know, averaging 10 points a game is like hitting 320 in AAA. And, and that translates quicker to an NBA roster than, say, the kid who's <clears throat> playing at Kansas or UCLA. So that's what's changed a lot about NBA teams getting more confident about what their scouting is telling them about European players. But again, it gets back to how skilled these guys come over. The other thing is you guys know, more often than not, international kids are great teammates. Um, they've learned the game in a, in a, in a, in a way that uh, promotes great team unity. Um, many of the EuroLeague teams have stars that only play 26 out of the 40 minutes. They're used to having eight, nine-man, ten-man rotations. And so when they come over here, they already are accustomed to being role players. Mm-hmm. Even if they were young stars, they're accustomed to being role players. A Ricky Rubio comes over here at 19 or 20, but he's been a role player on a Spanish national team. You know, playing with the Gasol brothers and, and Sergio Rodriguez and Rudy Fernandez. So I, I think the adjustment to the NBA for international guys is easier than it's ever been. I'm interested in the advice that these European players are getting that are, let's say they're going to be projected in the second round or potentially not drafted right. from their agents or from people in Europe. You know, what kind of advice do those guys get as far as, oh, should you go to the G League or would it be better to stay in the ACB um, for their career growth? Well, I think nowadays what you're seeing is, and Tice is a good example. He was undrafted, I, I think. I'm pretty sure he was undrafted. But these guys can stay at the, uh, you know, there's a, my European friends don't have a lot of confidence in the G League. Okay. They just see it, not necessarily as pickup ball. They really don't know. 28 of the 30 NBA franchises have their own affiliate. But you can stay in Europe, play in France or Spain or, or BBL in Germany, and NBA teams are still going to find you. You're not going to be lost anymore staying overseas as opposed to coming, let's say, playing in the G League. Um, I would advise a really good player who's on the cusp of potentially being an NBA player, unless an NBA team gives you a two-way contract and says, look, we're going to keep you in the G League. But I think that uh, they are fi- they're finding free agents all the time, guys that maybe go undrafted and weren't second-round draft and stash guys, but by the time they're 25 or 26, they become very good players capable of helping NBA teams. I still think that's a great way to do it because by the way, you can make a pretty good living, you know, playing in the ACB and they're going to find you Uh, teams have enough scouting firepower now that you may not get drafted, but they'll still find you if you can help an NBA team, especially when they're looking for really good role players. What leagues do you like to watch when you're going to watch some film or you're going to go over your life? What are kind of your top three leagues that you you enjoy watching honestly pat I, I wouldn't break it up that way i mean from a coaching standpoint i'll, I'll hear about like uh hey uh uh Ma- mancho hernandez up in obradoro is running great uh you know four corners pick and roll stuff uh we call angle pick and roll to the outside someone will yeah. say hey you got to study that and i'll get on and watch you know i know obradoro is interesting because they had matt thomas there mm-hmm. who i covered at iowa state and now big mike dom from south dakota state is there uh, Stephen Enoch's there this year from Louisville, a big kid who is represented by a friend of mine. So no, I I, I want to watch I want I want to watch you know I want to watch Andre uh, Trincheri. I want to watch Messina. I want to watch my buddy uh, Fotis Katsikaris where he might be coaching. Um, so I'll really just watch 
the coaches. Now, if I'm scouting or wanting to watch the young players like a Denny Abdia, then I'll, I'll clue in on a particular player, Killian Hayes, for the draft. But more often than not, I want to watch coaching styles. I want to, and I want to see good coaching matchups. So I might hear about, you know, these two coaches playing each other, and I know there's going to be those adjustments to the adjustments. And so it's not so much, you know, the French league is more athletic maybe than it's ever been. Uh, the German league is improving by leaps and bounds. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, ACB is always good. So, no, I, I, I just uh, – I just enjoy watching, you know, good basketball. So I'll t- I, I want to watch, uh, you know, Zalgiris. I, I want to watch what's going on in Lithuania because I know, you know, when Yesikavich uh, was there, I like studying his offensive system, and that's kind of how I do it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I just like it. Like it's like being a cheesecake factory. There's a lot on the menu, <laughs> and I just yeah. it's cheese. <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> you know, there's so much good coaching and talent over there. I mean, yeah. there's so many brilliant coaches over there, as you know. I'm speaking, I'm preaching to the choir that um, mm. I'll I'll go where somebody takes me if they say, "Hey, you got to go." Uh, who was, uh, you know, like John Patrick's team uh, yeah. in uh, in what Ludwigsburg? Ludwigsburg, yeah, yeah, pressing and playing ten guys and going crazy with the pressing defenses and. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll put on, you know, watch them. They, they kind of overachieved this year. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll take a peek at everybody, you know, just like yeah. <laughs> cheesecake factory. <laughs> Coach, um, kind of moving a little bit to your role as an announcer and the career you've had at ESPN. Easiest job in the world. <laughs> yeah, you haven't lost yet, right? Like stealing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I talk basketball for two hours, which I'm doing. I'm doing it with you guys for free. So that, yeah. Yeah, that that tells you all you need to know right there. Yeah, no, it's like slapping glass. We're yeah. we're undefeated with slapping glass. We haven't lost. Totally, yeah, totally. through the pain. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Um, but what I know you do such a great job of is taking a, you know a complex game to the outside world when they're watching these ten guys run around, and yeah. then making it into a digestible couple of sentences to explain what's going on um, and I think you do such a great job of balancing that line where as a coach I'm watching you and I'm listening to what you're saying because I understand it and then yeah. as a general fan I think they really understand it as well how long did it take you to kind of find that niche and to find that common area as an announcer well first of all Daniel that's probably as good a compliment as you can get as an announcer a broadcaster an analyst that you're catering to the people who love the game and study the game but also connecting with the common sports fan who just wants to be entertained for two hours. And it's very simple. It goes back to my coaching philosophy. I don't know about you guys, but every now and then you have a guy in your team who's a slow learner. And sometimes that slow learner is your best player. And so whatever concept you're teaching your entire team, if, if your best player doesn't understand what you're teaching, your team's in trouble. Okay. From a tactical standpoint. Right. But the point is, the fan who's watching at home, I want to break the game down so that somebody like you would say, wow, you know what? That's a good point Coach Fran just made. But somebody at home who's my mom, for example, you know, when, yeah. when she was alive and would watch games on TV and she didn't know basketball, she would say, oh, I really like the way you explained. What's that? Pick and roll, you know? And I'd say, yeah, mom, you know. And But that that's that's really the essence of what I'm trying to do. It's entertainment. Um, I want to take fans behind the scenes and tell them what's going on and why. Um, and somebody like you 
can say, who knows the game, can say, wow, you know what? He made a great point about inbounds plays and uh, the way they pre-switch it, for example, you know? And that happened, and that, I think, was one of the mistakes in that infamous uh, Mason Plumlee deal. yeah. I'm not sure that Jokic wasn't supposed to pre-switch early. I don't know. Right. But anyway, my point is, take something that's a little more complex to the average fan and have you say, uh, boy, that's pretty good. I'm going to tell... I'm going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to work on that tomorrow with Chapman. Sure. So that's what I love. And and the other thing about that is I know a lot of my coaching friends are watching. So I never want to say something where a coach at home or high school or college coach will say, I can't believe Fran for just said that that's not true. You know, so I'm very conscious of doing my homework so that if I have to be critical constructively of even Bill self, I wouldn't have done that if I were Bill Self, but hey, he's been to five Final Fours, and I haven't been to any. <laughs> but there's a way to be self-deprecating, but also get your point across. <clears throat> and I really enjoy coaching both teams every night I, I sit courtside. I get to coach both teams. That's the fun part. Do you ever get pregame jitters or nerves like you did as a coach, as an announcer? Is there, or no. no, are you? You're good. <laughs> no, honestly. No, it's completely different. Uh, no, it's completely different. I, I get excited for tip. When I was a head coach, um, I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember the old Jimmy Cagney movies uh, where the, the gangster is in, uh, you know, he's getting ready to go to the electric chair. Okay. And he's sitting in the room with the priest. And he's getting the last rites. That's what I felt like before every game. You know, like, I can't believe I got to go out here. Uh, but I always tell, I always, people always say that. You guys have experienced this. Like, what's coaching like? And I tell them, like, yeah, my stomach churned for the four hours before the game, but once the ball goes up, man, you don't have time to get nervous. Now you're like, I always compare coaching in a game situation to, you know, flying a 747 across the Atlantic. I mean, you're, you're so focused on every little thing going on that you, you're really not nervous. And then what happens when the game ends? You've, you've just piloted a, a 747 across the Atlantic, so your brain is racing. Right. So whether you won or lost, I can't sleep after a game. I, I always slept the night before a game because I felt like we did everything. We prepared. We walked through. We watched film. We broke it down. Let's get a good night's sleep and then go play tomorrow. And uh, so, no, broadcasting <laughs> is completely different. My biggest concern when I do a game, Dan, is I just hope Outback's open until 10. <laughs> okay <laughs> that's all i care about completely different than coaching so the so the the, the reviews the, the the replay reviews are killing you sometimes yeah that well that's true now that's true yeah. on, so, <laughs> games ending at 9 30 and we got to get the, you know just they'll serve us if we get in the door by 10 but uh, yeah that that's a problem but you know i've also made myself a friend of referees too I really, and I would, I, I, you know, I would encourage young coaches who are listening, study the rule book. I know the rule book way better now as an announcer than I did as a coach, because, you know, as a coach, you can go up to a referee during the game and go, Hey, Pat, are we allowed to sub a guy in if the clock didn't start? What's that rule? And you can't do that on TV because then you're no longer an expert. And there are rules in the rule book that a coach can take advantage of from a strategy standpoint if they just studied them. So I like to, I really take pride in the rules because uh, I want to be able to say, nope, that official got this call right. Here's the deal here. You know, when there's a foul in the last minute and you've subbed your player out, if the foul's on the other team, you can sub the player back in without the clock starting. 
you know, new, new, new NCAA rule a couple of years ago. So I want people at home to go, how do you know, how did he know that? Because I'm being paid to be an expert. So I, I take those, all those little mundane, mundane things seriously as an announcer. What are some rules that maybe you would like to see change in the NCAA game or if, if any, uh, you know, I know there's always the purest of the game, but also making the game maybe a little bit more entertaining. Yeah, I'm a purist, so I think we should have four quarters. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, NCAA basketball is the only sport in the world right now, basketball at least, uh, that's not four quarters. Four quarters, excuse me. Yeah. I love four quarters. I love the idea of resetting the, the team, foul, team fouls at the end of the quarter because I think when you watch a college game, Pat, um, you'll see that at the 10 minute mark, both teams are in the bonus. So the next 10 minutes of the first half, all we're doing yeah. is shooting free throws. And we've experimented with four quarters in the NIT, and I think it's been fabulous. I also think it's unconscionable that high school basketball in the United States is not played with a shot clock. Um, yeah. As you know from being overseas, um, the shot clock doesn't necessarily always help the team with more talent. I, I think the shot clock develops offensive skill level because every player's got to be able to handle the ball in a low clock situation. I think the shot clock promotes ball movement in many cases um, in order to attack a good defense. And I think great coaches will still get – I'm talking about high school coaches. Great high school coaches will still get a good shot with a shot clock, and they'll still keep a more talented, more athletic team – from getting a great shot, even with the shot clock. So coaching will still be a factor, but I think offensive skill development would be enhanced greatly in the United States if every one of the 50 states had a shot clock in high school. And I would not be adverse to going a 24-second clock someday at the NCAA level. Because as you know, overseas in, in Europe, 14, 15, 16-year-old kids are groomed with a shot clock, and they play with a shot clock in their head. And I think decision-making gets better. To get back to what we said earlier, decision-making gets better because you're, you're making more decisions and practices and games. So obviously you do something long enough, you'll get better at it. And that, that, would, that would happen uh, organically. Yeah, I mean, just to vent, nothing would frustrate me more when you see a coach just, we're going to run this offense for 20 seconds. And if it's not a layup, we don't yeah. take anything. And then they yeah. back it out and, okay, top pick and roll. Yeah, well, well, it's funny you say that because I'm I, I'm always conscious of like helping young coaches, so hopefully they'll be listening to this. One of the best, uh, what would I say, uh, light coming on in my head was as a 20 year old college. Uh, I was a counselor at a basketball camp when I was 20 years old, and I couldn't wait to put in my pattern offense, and we put it in the first day at camp. But the only thing was, and it looked beautiful, except the kids never knew when to shoot. Like, yeah. this is great you know we're going side to side here but when do we actually get to shoot <laughs> oh yeah forgot about that part yeah. <laughs> just, just admire the play before you ask any of these yeah. questions yeah. Play was beautiful. the play was beautiful <laughs> is that everybody was afraid to shoot uh, uh, you know so it became a good passing drill yeah. <laughs> that's good <laughs> um coach you when you were at st john's you coached a player that at the time was um, not a one-and-done guy, but was a, a projected first-round pick in Felipe Lopez. Yes. And he was the player of the year in high school, and he was kind of coming up around Kobe's time as well, and there was a lot of hoopla around Felipe. And you coached him uh, for two years, right, junior, senior year at St. John's. Can you compare your experience coaching a, a first-round draft pick to what, 
the guys now have to go through coaching these first round draft picks for like the one and done year at the highest levels. Yeah. And I also had Ron Artest, Meta World Peace, as a freshman. Uh, okay. At the same time. He was a freshman when Felipe was a senior. And I don't know if you got a chance to see the Dominican Dream, the 30 for 30, but it was a great, it was a great 30 for 30 on Felipe. And it wasn't just his basketball experience, which was a roller coaster in New York. And turned out we ended up on a, on a little bit of a high, but it also was the story of an immigrant family mm-hmm. uh, who basically spoke no English when they came from the Dominican Republic. So it was a great story. And Felipe is a great, a great young man. He's a great human being. Uh, and and uh, when I got to St. John's, when he, when he was a junior coming from Manhattan College, where we were the Cinderella team, it'd be like going from Loyola Marymount, where you had success, to go to UCLA, you know, literally right down the road. Um I felt an enormous amount of pressure to help Felipe uh, re recalibrate his career, which kind of had stalled, honestly. And it was it was no it was nothing more than his desire to want to do everything I told him he had to do in order to reach his potential. And so that was easy, you know. Coaching Felipe Lopez was one of the great joys of my life because um, he went from being on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a college freshman and all this you know, really uh, pre-social media hoopla, which today would have been absolutely off the chart. You know, it would have been Imani Bates, this young kid coming up now, or, you know, uh, Zion Williamson. It was, it was akin to Zion Williamson. Um, But he was graceful. He was like a prince. He had, he had a regalness about him. Even when the New York media was killing him, he never let it bother him. And then ultimately he had great success as a senior and it's kind of a really interesting tale because it's why it made such a great 30 for 30. Because even in success and being a first-round pick, going to the NBA and being a role player and then finding his niche, then he tears his ACL and his career ends. But um, there's a, there, is pressure on, there is pressure on a college coach nowadays to coach a one-and-done or a, a pro prospect. Because, but it, it hasn't changed, Daniel, because here's what I told my guys at St. John's. And I coached five of those guys that made the NBA. And here's a coach's responsibility. Let's say I was coaching Pat, okay? My job, if he's good enough, is when he goes to the Chicago Bulls training camp and they're going to keep 15 guys and they might have a spot for two rookies and they're considering four, I want the coaches in the meeting at the end of training camp to say, we can't cut this guy from St. John's, this guy Pat. He plays too hard. Or he does too much for our team. So I always trained and coached my guys, not to be NBA players, but I always told the better ones, they're going to they're gonna have a hard time cutting you because you're going to show up at every practice and you're going to be there early. You're going to stay late. You're going to compete. You're going to know what hard work is. And they're going to love you for the way you play. And that was my responsibility as a coach. And so, you know, my responsibility with, to Felipe Lopez. And by the way, to Ron Artest, who played 17 years in the league. And people said to me, how did you coach this guy who was so volatile and emotional? I said, I was crazier than him. (laughs) I wanted him to understand that as intense as he was, that I was going to be more intense every day in practice and I would make him a better player. So when he would start to lose his mind and lose his composure at practice, I would, I would like go off on something else. Like I would yell at somebody else and go crazy, and then he would come over to me and calm me down. Like, no, it's okay. 
know, so you had to play mind games with these guys. But the ultimate, the ultimate thing, Dan, is to prepare somebody to play at, at the NBA level because that's these guys' dreams. Yeah. And the one thing as a college coach you want to do is be able to have a co- NBA set play, coach tell you, hey, this kid showed up ready from day one. You did a great job with him. And to me, that was always my goal. Just to follow up, then, so our programs nowadays, I mean, obviously the, the blue chip programs, the top programs, are they trying to sell these kids then on that, you know, individual development, individual growth, or the team success over, over team success that, you know, we're going to be competitive, of course. We play ACC, we play Pac-12, yeah. but we're going to get you better. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm going to give you an answer. Um, I just did some research. I anecdotally looked at five mock drafts last week, Okay, five different people who've got these mock drafts. And so that's 31st-round picks times five. That's 150 slots. Some players are the same in each, you know, certain guys that are in all five mock drafts. In, in, all, in, the, in the 150 slots, winning was only mentioned three times, okay? Yeah. You know, and, and two of them was negative. And one was positive. It was the kid, Sadiq Bey from Villanova. You know, this kid's going to bring winning DNA to an NBA team uh, coming in from Villanova. And so to answer your question, Patrick, I don't think, and I know coaches in the NBA feel this way, winning matters. Uh, drafting or signing college guys who win matter. Now, you have to have the talent to make a team in the league. But I, don't th- I think some NBA franchises – you know, there's 30 of them. And if everybody knew what they were doing, everybody would end up 41 and 41 every year. Okay. And that's not the case. And so to your point, develop skill development, absolutely critical, but, but teams are looking for guys that come, come from winning programs or know how to win or know how to compete. And if you look at the Miami heat right now, I mean, you can go down that list of guys, some of who've gone uh, in the first round, some in the second round, and obviously a few that were undrafted, Kendrick Nunn and, and uh, Duncan Robinson, and winning matters to teams. I'm just telling you, I talk to these guys all the time. Does it? Does a player on your roster help you win? Royce O'Neal helps the Jazz win, even though he was a role player in the ACB. He helps the Jazz win. You know, Miami has guys that help them win, and they're not the stars. And I think, I think to your point. It has to be a combination of the two if a player really wants to have a chance to play at the highest level, unless you're Zion Williamson and you're just uber-talented. Yeah, and to, to, to connect that to um, our podcast with Ryan Pannone, um, Pannone talked about coaching his G League guys and yeah. also being you know someone that coached in the Euro League, telling his guys, hey, if you can't help a G League team win, you're yeah. not going to be able to help a Euro League team win and wanting those winning guys as well. No question. And Ryan's a good friend. And that was, you know, Mike Taylor. You've had some great guests on early. They, I, uh, I go on a two hour walk every day. When I, when I see the new podcast pop up, I go, okay, good. This is going to be for first hour is going to be slapping glass. With Ryan and Mike, you know, and, uh, thank you. Really good stuff. I mean that really good stuff. I'm learning a lot. Thank you. Thank coach. You, coach. Well, you've announced a lot of games and you've been with a lot of great co-hosts and, and people that are doing a lot of the great play by play. Yes. If you could pick anyone from the history of broadcasting, uh, a dream team of a guy or two that you would love to co-broadcast a game with, who would that be on that short list for you? So first of all, I've already I've already reached one of those uh, goals. 
I worked three years with Brent Musburger. Oh. Who's a legend. Who yeah. spans the history of modern uh, sports, going back to uh, Gar Her, Triple Overtime, Celtics, Suns, 1976. Joe Namath, he was he was there. He was a young reporter. The Flutie, the Flutie, era, the Flutie throw, uh, NBA Finals. Uh, Brent Musburger is a legend, one of the greatest announcers ever. I worked three years with Brent. I loved it. It was like playing in the same backcourt with John Stockton, the way he set me up, you know? Brilliant, brilliant broadcaster. He's still, he's 81. He's the radio play-by-play guy of the uh, Las Vegas Raiders. And, of course, if I could go with a three-man booth, it would have to be the beloved Hubie Brown, you know? And uh, every now and then when a game gets out of hand, you'll hear, you'll hear me, and it might be a blowout. I might say, now, come on. Now, you love this kid, okay? Because you know he's going to get you 14 and 9 every night, okay? <laughs> he's going to score at a high rate in the painted area. Come on, we all know this, okay? <laughs> in our league, you must score in the painted area. So, Yubi um, <laughs> and Brent Musburger, hands down, I work with, I've worked with so many fabulous announcers, but uh, those two guys are both Hall of Famers. And Yubi uh, knows how I feel about him. I've been to a million clinics. And Brent knows how I feel about him because I spent three great years with him on Big 12 basketball. As has your buddy Steve Lavin, by the way. Yeah. Big 10. Right, yeah. Before, before me uh, and Brent in the Big 10, it was Steve and uh, Brent in the, Big, I mean, in the Big 12. It was, it was those guys in the Big 10. That'd be great. Yeah. Well, we got to, yeah, we got to get that to happen. You, you and you <laughs> would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, he, this, I think he just, I think he just hit birthday number 85. Hard to believe. Wow. Impressive. Yeah. He's still doing it. Yeah. yeah tremendous. Well, coach, as we kind of wrap this up, uh, this has been fantastic learning so much and having fun talking to you. The, the last question for you, and you can kind of take this any direction that you want. What's one of the best investments that you've made in your career? Oh, that is a great question. Uh, that's a great question. I, I have, I, I have tried to read, um, and now with the internet, it, it opens up so many more opportunities to learn the game with YouTube and you know, and and all the video that's out. That wasn't around when I started forty years ago. But I think reading about coaches and leaders would be the best investment that I made early on. I've always had a love of uh, history. I studied American history. So between uh, reading, a, I, I love football coaches' bios. Um, I grew up around the corner from Vince Lombardi's family in Brooklyn, so I've always been a, a, a hero worshiper. So I would absolutely say the best investment that I've made was probably reading books about coaches, historical leaders, business leaders because they allow you to see their strengths and weaknesses. They allow you inside decision-making mistakes they made and successes and allowed me to learn from their mistakes and their successes and add it to my own, you know, philosophy of what I think coaching and leading young men is all about. So I, I think that's probably the best investment I made early on as a young, young man was to read everything I can from a biographical standpoint and, and add to uh, what I was trying to do with my own coaching career. Yeah, that's great. Coach, this has been so much fun. Um, we really appreciate your time. And I know from both of us and Pat, I'll let you, you know, 
close too but from me personally being a fan of yours and love watching anytime you know you're announcing a game i'm i'm glued in and i, I love watching it and so oh, thank, thank you for you, coming man. on and thanks for what you do for the basketball community at large yeah thank you coach we appreciate your time and yeah helping us learn the game as well and like you said sharing it with others yeah thank you when you get to my point in my career what you want to do is you want to you want to you want to pay forward and I can't pay back the people, the coaches that helped me. So now there's so many young coaches out there just looking and soaking up information that if I can do a small part by passing on what I've learned over 40 years and, and what I've learned over three months or the last two weeks and, and pass it on to the next generation of coaches, it's a fun aspect of what I enjoy doing right now. Keep up the great work. I mean this. Uh, I'm not just saying this. Uh, I discovered you guys just a few weeks ago. You've already had on some friends of mine, people I admire, and uh, I, I will help you. I mean this, you know, whether it's tweeting out things. I think we got to keep giving back, and you guys are giving back great info to the coaching community. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe. And we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.